Hello, and welcome to Objective Health. I am your host today, Erica, and joining me in the studio is Doug and Elliot. Hello. Hello. So today we're going to do a little in the news segment. Um, Lots of things going on in the news, and so we just wanted to have a little recap of some interesting information that we read about in the last weeks. Uh, Starting off today, uh, dare we approach the subject of the uh, COVID-19. And so there was an article recently carried in The Guardian, well, the 16th of March, about how health experts are criticizing the NHS for advising people to take ibuprofen and this ibuprofen could actually exaggerate uh, infection, especially uh, pneumonia-type infections. So from the article, uh, French authorities warned against taking widely used over-the-counter anti-inflammatory drugs. And um, Professor Ian Jones, a virologist at the University of Reading, said there's good scientific evidence for ibuprofen actually aggravating the condition or prolonging it, and that the recommendations need to be updated. Um, Sizable literature from case control studies in several countries that prolong the illness or the complications of respiratory infections may be more common when NSAIDs are used. Uh, Studies have also linked anti-inflammatory drugs to worsening pneumonia. So... What do you, what do y'all think? Well, I know we did a show about the how drugs change your personality, and we know ibuprofen and paracetamol can cause a reduction in empathy. So, how does this kind of correlate to that? Well, yeah, I mean, it. I just find it kind of interesting that the French authorities were like, "By the way, guys, don't use these drugs." as pain relievers, even though like, you know, generally people don't really think about that kind of thing and they just, you know, will pop an anti-inflammatory for whatever reason, whenever they're feeling like run down or uh, injured themselves or something like that. So it's kind of funny that they came out and said that. And then the NHS was just kind of like, oh yeah, everybody take ibuprofen. And it's like, it's so funny too, because later on in the article, the guy like doubles down on it. Where it's kind of like, no, there's no evidence that um, this does anything um, bad for COVID-19. And he's, he's probably right. I mean, nobody's done a study on COVID-19 yet, right? Where they're actually like taking, I, you know, let's try these people on ibuprofen and we'll take these people who aren't and we'll see what happens. It's like, it's, it's too new. They obviously haven't done anything like that. And they kind of use that as a basis for saying, no, there's no reason to, uh, to avoid this. It's kind of like the French are taking the, like the precautionary principle seriously, and the Brits are not. They're just doing the exact opposite. Yeah, um, apparently the, I, I don't know the mechanism, I was looking for it, but I couldn't find it. But apparently it was talking, the, the idea is that ibuprofen would actually halt the immune system so it would halt the um the kind of branch of the immune system which is responsible for like for protecting your body against the virus kind of thing so actually by taking that that could slow your progression it could slow your healing um whereas something like paracetamol would not do that because they work on two different mechanisms i don't think that they've actually yeah there's no study on it but um 
yeah, I think it would probably be safer to err on the side of caution, right? And it seems like if you had a fever, you would want your body to naturally go through that process, right? Of fighting off infection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think that we uh, have have kind of come to this place where we we no longer trust the natural mechanisms that the body has for dealing with these kinds of things. And we want to kind of step in and override all those things. You know, like a fever, yeah, a fever can be uncomfortable, but that doesn't necessarily mean you should stop it. You know, the body produces a yes. fever for a very good reason, like you said, to, to kill off the virus. Um, now, I mean, mind you, like, you know, if these things can get out of control, like fevers can go too high and they can become dangerous. And it's good that we have medications that can deal with that kind of thing. But the idea of popping a pill at the first sign of a fever just because, you know, it's, it, it is uncomfortable, you know, you're... You're, you're making things worse for you in the long run, essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could even say the same thing about vaccines, really. That we no longer trust our body's natural immunity, so we've come up with this technological way to try and force the immune system to do what we want it to do. When in many situations, you know, not all, um, well, maybe all, actually, but... Uh, <laughs> The body acquiring natural immunity would be far superior than this artificial immunity that's uh, delivered by the vaccines. So, yeah, technology sucks, guys. (laughs) Well, it seems, you know, that uh, as you were saying, Doug, about the vaccines, you know, I mean, it's it's putting your health in the hands of somebody else who, quote unquote, maybe knows better when you know we all uh, i hope are thinking human beings and we try and do what's least invasive initially and then maybe move to the more invasive so um another kind of good topic for our in the health news today is elderberries so uh There was a great article called Elderberries Block Flu Virus from Attaching to and Entering Human Cells. And they basically, it's just scientists have identified a chemical compound in elderberries that immediately immobilizes the flu virus. And um, previous studies have already shown elderberry extract can ease flu symptoms and cut the duration of the illness in half. But a new study explains exactly how this remedy works. And so they talk about the phytochemicals found in elderberries block the virus from entering or even attaching to our healthy cells when taken preventively during flu season. And um, you can make a tea out of the elderberry. There's all these great kind of older remedies Um, with elderberry syrup, using things like apple cider vinegar and fresh cloves and even honey. And so this is a kind of remedy that's been around for hundreds of years that people have used to just keep these kind of viruses at bay, especially during, you know, an uh, outbreak. I don't want to say pandemic because that's a very (laughs) loaded word. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean... Sorry, go ahead, Elliot. I was just going to say, yeah, elderberry has been known, uh, particularly among kind of Western herbalists or even non-herbalists, just, um, you know, I guess you'd say folk 
folk um folk medicine or folklore or not really even folklore just traditional you know kind of like grandma stuff they know <laughs> they know that you should rec- you should be taking things like elderberry jams or elderberry teas elderberry tinctures you know it, it's it, it used to be quite common from what i understand um now as Erica said, there's been loads of research on this. Like if you just go onto PubMed and you type in elderberry and then virus, there's, I mean, there's loads. A lot of it has been done uh, primarily on influenza. So that's just like the flu. I mean, it's been shown to like halt how the virus is, is replicating, stopping it from attaching to cells and then getting into cells. Like um, Erica was saying, it, it, it's effective at, blocking almost every single stage of the processes which by which a virus would infect a human being right um and so it's one of those very simple very simple ways um that someone can really boost their immunity for very cheap i mean at this time of year there's not going to be any well at least in the uk i don't know about in the us but there's no elderberries growing like where we are they usually come out kind of mid to late summer um, but you know, this year with all of this research come out, I've decided that I'm actually going to harvest a bunch of elderberries mm. and then I, you know, you can dry them, you can process them there and then you can make out, al- you can make tinctures. I was going to say alcohol then. I mean, you can't make alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if that would be, you know, antiviral, but, um, but yeah, there's so many ways that you can process these, um, Again, it's, it's kind of this concept that, you know, nature, it's one of nature's gifts, right? And that actually we can make use of that in a very simple way. Yeah. And it's, and I mean, it's interesting with panic buying on Amazon, how it's gone up a little, but it's still affordable. I mean, I think for one pound of elderberries, you can spend $30 and that can make, you know, six months worth of, as you were talking about Elliot tinctures or teas. I mean, you can really, it's, it's, you know, you can store it. So you have, uh, 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 collection of it for time, you know, it's just, again, one of those really non-invasive things and it, it can, you can make it taste good, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be some nasty concoction. It can be, uh, enjoyable and, you know, yeah. brew it into wine if you absolutely <laughs> have to <laughs> ferment it or, but even just drinking it like as a tea, it's not bad. Like it's not, it's, mm-hmm. it's not one of those ones. I mean, the berries themselves have like a smell to them. They're like, they're kind of stinky, but mm-hmm. um, the, like just drinking it as a tea, it's like, it's, it's, you know, has a bit of sourness to it, but it's not, you know, it's not like a horrific medicinal where, you know, some of these things that you, you taste is just like disgusting, but no, it's, it's actually quite nice. And also there's other benefits from elderberry use, things like arthritis, uh, the viral infections we talked about, bronchitis, coughs, flu, hay fever, inflammation, nasal and chest congestion, sinus infections, sore throat, tonsillitis, and even yeast infections. Hmm. So just, just, um, you know, keeping any of those kind of conditions at bay by just you know, having a daily cup of elderberry tea. Now we should say that we don't know if it would actually help you against the deadly coronavirus, but 
it might. But we never make health <laughs> claims here. Yeah, we don't make health claims at it's all. A, it's a suggestion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So what else do we have in our... Uh... Sorry, I was just going to say, people could yes. make an elderberry syrup, you know, if, if, mm-hmm. if they are, if, you know, if they... They don't want to make a tincture or they don't want to drink a tea. They can make a syrup, which is actually quite tasty from what I understand. The mm-hmm. um the the recipe is one cup of raw honey, 3.5 cups of cold water, one teaspoon of organic cinnamon powder or one cinnamon stick, one tablespoon of fresh or dried organic ginger root, and two cups of organic dried elderberries. And then you basically just put it in a saucepan, pull the water on, add the elderberries, cinnamon, and ginger. You boil it, lower the heat, and then you let it to simmer for 45 minutes covered. And then it kind of thickens up and you mash the berries. You cook it for a little bit longer and then you strain it through like a cheesecloth. And then you'll, you'll, you add in the honey afterwards. Um, oh. and, and, then, and then you've basically got like a thick syrup i mean ideally you'd want to be using raw honey because the raw honey is also going to be containing many of the kind of antimicrobial um, beneficial phyto compounds and things so yeah you let that sit sit and i'm guessing that you could have kind of you know a teaspoon of that every day mm-hmm. or maybe you know a couple teaspoons if you were if you were sick um and that's you know if it's a it's essentially a conserve so that's going to last for a very long time that's mm-hmm. a good idea yeah, because I used to work at a health food store and we sold elderberry syrup and it would be quite popular around like cold and flu season. Um, but I never thought about making it. That's actually interesting. Yeah, and if you get honey from your local area, you know, at your farmer's market or from a neighbor, it's got all those good uh you know, antibacterial for your environment that you live in. I mean, mm-hmm. honey is uh, it's really an amazing kind of serum. Mm. All right. So what next? What What's next on our list? Well, since we're already talking about flus and viruses, we could talk about the headline that we just saw recently that Philip Morris International um, what's it called? Medicago develops a plant-based vaccine for coronavirus. What? Yeah, right? It's like there's so many questions there. Um, Okay, so apparently what they've done is taken the DNA RNA in a virus? RNA um, of COVID-19 and genetically modified that into yeast or bacteria, some kind of microorganism, and then basically put that into plants, and the plants kind of t- or put it into the soil, and the plants take it up. And they did it with these tobacco plants, because it's Philip Morris, after all. And the tobacco plants took up these, uh, these um, bacteria, and so that DNA, sorry, RNA became part of the plant. So then they can take it from the plant, and they make a vaccine with it and are calling it a plant-based vaccine. It's, I don't know. It's kind of crazy to me. (laughs) I mean, are they doing this? Are they doing all these steps just to be able to call it a plant-based vaccine? Like, is there an advantage to a plant-based vaccine other than it's vegan friendly? 
Or are they doing it to try and uh, make tobacco look good again? <laughs> well, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it just, just brings up more questions than it gives answers. It's like, you know, they've already been like, I've seen a bunch of articles about them, you know, rushing a vaccine and all this kind of stuff. And then Philip Morris just comes along and goes, oh, yeah, we made one. And it's made out of plants. <laughs> it says in an article that using plants and genetically engineered agrobacteria works faster yeah. than eggs. So maybe it works faster. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe that, maybe that answers some of the question as to why. Yeah. Plants, GMO plants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah GMO try. plants good. <laughs> <laughs> it's plant based, but it's GMO. What do I do? Viruses bad. It's hard to not to. It's hard to not make fun of something. So I, we apologize <laughs> if our humor is uh, inappropriately placed at this time. <laughs> well. Yeah, they, you guys can go watch our show that we did on the coronavirus. If you have any questions, <laughs> if we've offended you, sorry. We're just trying to keep up with the headlines. Yeah, it's a lot, lot flying around out there. So another headline that's kind of interesting that you know again when these types of topics come up and they inundate everything it's like these little kind of important tidbits of information kind of seep through the cracks and go completely unnoticed. Um, so we have talked a lot about vaccines on this show in the past, and uh, we wanted to bring up this article called ICANN calls on CDC to remove misinformation about vaccines and autism from website. And this is, uh, is it Dell Bigtree, right, mm -hmm. Doug? Um, yeah. So he was one of the uh, creators of Vaxxed, the documentary about uh, vaccines. And he has been diligently working in this area. And so uh, ICANN is actually the Informed Consent Action Network. And they submitted a Freedom of Information request to the CDC to um, provide all the studies supporting the claim that vaccines do not cause autism. Specifically, ICANN asked the CDC to produce all the studies that demonstrated that the vaccines given in the first six months of life did not cause autism. And um, basically, uh, the CDC failed to produce a single study after months of follow-up requests. And so ICANN sued the CDC in federal court, and they finally uh, produced the studies, all 20 of them. And so he kind of goes through, um, you know, what they were looking for. Uh, but basically, it sounds like not one of the studies um, that the CDC provided actually addressed ICANN's questions. No. And, um, boy, yeah, it's just like, <laughs> again, I'm kind of flabbergasted by it. They just gave a bunch of studies on different topics. Like they gave... I mean, they gave, uh, what, 13 on thimerosal. They gave um, one on the MMR vaccine. Um, but, it, yeah, as you said, it, it was completely off topic. It's almost like what they've done is they 
<laughs> you know, they've been sued, so they, they don't really have a choice. So they've mm. just randomly picked a bunch of studies. <laughs> just, just just giving it, yeah, just to say that they, you know, to put it down on paper that they, they complied. That's what yeah. it seems like. Yeah, because basically the, the, they, what they asked for specifically were the vaccines that are given in the f- first six months of life, I think, or of mm-hmm. infancy. And that included the DTaP, HIV, Hep B, Prevnar, and the polio vaccine. And they gave them, like the CDC gave them ones about thimerosal, and those uh, vaccines don't contain thimerosal. They gave them ones about MMR. They didn't ask for studies on MMR because, you know, they're trying to make this connection, right? Like if 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 one of the vaccines... Um, that's given in the first six months of life is what is actually um, they believe is causing the autism, then they want studies on those vaccines. And the CDC just gives them a bunch of random ones. It's just ridiculous. And then I think they gave two studies that actually were relevant. Um, but the one, okay, so the first study, they're in their conclusion, they say the evidence is inadequate to accept or reject a causal relationship between diphtheria toxoid, tetanus toxoid, or acellular pertussis containing vaccine and autism. Evidence is inadequate to accept or reject. Okay, thanks. <laughs> um, and then the second of these two studies um, looked at the antigen of the vaccine loads, which is not what they asked for, um, because they aren't most most people who are um, suspicious of vaccines. Essentially, it's not the adge- um, sorry, it's not the antigen that they're concerned about, right? It's not the virus. It's the adjuvants. It's all the other crap that they're putting in there. That's the thing that they're concerned about. So that study has nothing to do with any of that. That it's just the the all they were testing was the antigen. So mm-hmm. it's and what still- they showed in. What they showed in that study was that there, there's no increase in autism associated with the increase in antigens. Right. Nothing to do, as you just said, nothing to do with the adjuvants. No one said it was the a- antigens which were causing, no. you know, the autism. We're concerned with aluminium and mercury and all of the other crap. Yeah. And, and all of them together at the same time, yeah. the overload. So it's basically just well, a smokescreen. Yeah. And I mean... Th- and- Sorry, go ahead, Erica. Oh, no, I was going to go ahead. Cause, uh, no, I was I'm just going to say, off. and now what, what <laughs> Del Bigtree has basically is saying is that he is calling for the CDC to take those statements off their website, saying mm-hmm. that, um, that uh, vaccines do not cause autism. Because essentially, they, it's, it's a marketing claim. They don't have any mm-hmm. evidence behind that. They're just, you know, they're throwing it up there as they would like any kind of advertisement. So... I mean, he hasn't said anything about legal action on this yet, but the fact that he actually filed charges against them to get the Freedom of Information request, you know, who knows? Maybe uh, if anybody could do it, it's him, I have to say. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say, and and I apologize if I seem a little hot under the collar about this, but this is this is the CDC. So now in the United States, they're like in control of what's going on with, you know, the whole quarantining and the virus. I mean, these are the people that have control right now over what's going to happen in the long term for at least for Americans. And that's a scary thought that they had to be sued by Dell and his organization to get information. And then instead of doing what was asked to them by law, 
they just throw a bunch of nonsense out there. So if, if you know, you think these people are looking out for your health and well-being, this is a little tiny kind of red flag mm-hmm. about this organization. And, you know, we've talked about the CD plenty in our shows in the past. It, it just, it seems like they are a for-profit vaccine company mm-hmm. that just happens to be state federally funded or however they get their money it is by not being clear and providing documentation to the people that really could use it and benefit from it so that's my that's my my rant on the cdc yeah because <laughs> I mean, whenever anyone says well the cdc says i just have to say i'm I, i'm sorry i'm not a true believer i no. really am not <laughs> no it's like saying any other corporation says it's like google says it's like Microsoft <laughs> says, you know, because that's essentially what they are, right? They have mm-hmm. a vested interest in selling vaccines. Mm-hmm. And these type of these types of information that come out in these little small people that just do their due diligence and don't give up are a huge thorn in their side. Yeah, you know, they really are, and I, I, um, I really applaud the work that ICANN's doing because informed consent is going to be an issue that we're all going to have to deal with sooner or later as this hysteria progresses. Did we have any positive news? <laughs> Cockroach. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. Oh, yes. My <laughs> I was going to say, for those of us who are lact- lactose intolerant, you know, <laughs> We finally got something to look forward to. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> well, it's the, the secretion from from the from the sack of, of the cockroach, right? Oh, <laughs> that yeah. just can't be true. Is this a joke? <laughs> Apparently, it's true. Uh, yeah, this uh, this article kind of crept across our feed recently. Why cockroach milk is the new health obsession. And, it's know, a superfood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yet another superfood. It's yeah, it, and it's so funny that they call it a health obsession. Like it doesn't actually exist yet, right? Like I mean, it exists obviously, but it doesn't. It's not marketed yet. There, there's no such thing. You can't go to your health food store and say, "Can I please have two liters of cockroach milk?" <laughs> um, but apparently, it's still a health obsession, um, and they're pursuing it because apparently, cockroach milk, um, which they're harvesting from the Pacific beetle cockroach. Um, It's packed with valuable nutrients. And they think that harvesting cockroach milk is like the future. This is going to be the next big thing. Everybody's going to be drinking their cockroach milk. Starbucks will have cockroach milk lattes. Um, You'll be able to get cockroach milk ice cream. It's going to be a whole line of cockroachy goodness for you to benefit from (laughs) well i i found i kind of highlighted this in my notes that i'd like to share it says the findings of this research were initially released in 2016 but its popularity has reached its peak when the interest rose towards more environmentally friendly non-dairy alternatives of course (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that the cockroaches are releasing less CO2 than those cows. 
<laughs> well, it's ironic because to to make a hundred grams, which is ten centiliters of cockroach milk, <laughs> you you wouldn't believe how many they need to kill. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even say it without laughing. <laughs> they have to kill a thousand cockroaches to make oh ten centiliters. <laughs> That's cockroach oh genocide. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, that's because they do have to kill them to extract the milk, right? It's not like they can sit there like on, a, on like a, with like tiny little things and you know squeeze their udders and get milk from them. They actually have to cut them open to get the milk out. Yeah, they use a scalpel. They mm. use a scalpel and they take out the portion which contains the secretion and they kind of extract it that way. So it's a very costly, time-consuming process. Um, and that's I think that's what they're concerned about is that actually they have no idea how they're going to actually kind of, you know, make this scalable in any way and actually in any way kind of affordable or profitable because <laughs> I think it's just a waste of time personally. What they're yeah. I prefer the research money to be going somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's so many hurdles there. I mean, yeah, making it profitable like would be one thing. But also like public perception, like who the hell wants to drink cockroach milk? Like honestly, is there anybody out there like maybe some crazy vegans? Like I can see maybe some like, you know, because they draw their lines at arbitrary levels anyway of what they consider to be a life form worth saving and what one not to save so maybe cockroaches for them are kind of like their lives aren't as valuable as the uh the cow's lives are anyway i can see maybe some crazy vegans being kind of like yes you know cockroach milk even though it's not vegan i'll do it but you know even still because they won't do honey right yeah yeah no i don't see who is this marketed towards honestly I can't yeah, see any I mean, sensible person actually wanting to have this. Anyone would just use cows or goats, not right? Like. <laughs> totally. But you know, Elliot, it's got it contains three times more energy of an equivalent mass of dairy milk. <laughs> In other words, it has more calories, which is a marketing yeah. nightmare for them because everybody thinks that calories, for some reason, energy from food is actually a bad thing. You want to minimize your calories. Well, not to mention getting into the yuck factor of like, what do cockroaches eat that that's making that milk? Oh, <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I did because I lived in a place where they had this Diplora punctata. It's native to Australia, China, Hawaii, Fiji, India, and they are the nastiest things ever, oh. ever. <laughs> I don't know if I would ever drink cockroach milk. I do know that I, I would think. never drink cockroach milk. I can pretty firmly state that. It's like the whole thing where they're talking about like, oh, yeah, bugs are the new big thing and all this kind of stuff. Everybody's going to be eating bugs. And not this guy. I am not eating bugs. Yeah. I draw the line. You're not eating it. You're just milking it. <laughs> no. All right. Well. We had to have something good. We had to have a good laugh, you know, yeah. with all the uh, the tension and the stress that is going around, you know, try and have a little levity in your day. <laughs> Indeed. Talk to your friends about cockroach milk and see what they say. <laughs> <laughs> Do a poll. <laughs> so 
we thank you all for uh, tuning in again and listening to our In the Health news. And um, we appreciate if you would like and subscribe. If you're interested in any topics, please comment in our little chat section. And um, thank you to my co-hosts, all three of you. And uh, we hope to see you all again on the other side next week. Bye, everybody. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye.